Amen. How are you? It's a different question, right? Good to see you guys. I'm going to go to the Top Golf thing uh, to make the rest of you look good. So uh, I, I hope I hope that you also can make it. Uh, listen, uh, before I jump into the message this morning, which I've kind of abbreviated a little bit, I, I want to talk about what happened in our country this past Friday. Because unless you were on the moon, and even if you were on the moon, uh, you are aware of the fact that something historic occurred. As the Supreme Court of the United States of America uh, undid a decision that they did 49 years ago, which 49 years ago made abortion a constitutionally protected right across the nation. Uh, They have undone that. They said they shouldn't have done it, according to this new opinion. And they have taken it, and they have put the decision back into the states. It does not mean that abortion is suddenly illegal, but it does mean that there's going to be 50 conversations going on in 50 different states and that conversation, I think, is a healthy one, in my opinion. And I, I just, I want to acknowledge that. I want to say that. I feel like if, if I didn't, it would be a little bit weird. And, and, I, and I want to say a couple of other things, too. Like, I, I'm trying to curb my enthusiasm about this because, to be honest, total transparency, that's really exciting to me. It's really exciting to me. You know, we talk about things where you go, oh, I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to see. I didn't think in anybody's lifetime that we would see the opportunity to have these conversations in the different states around our union. Um, So I'm pretty amazed by that. But I'm trying to conceal that a little bit um, because I know that not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody shares that enthusiasm. Okay, love you if you don't, really. And I also want to curb my enthusiasm a little bit because this is one of the most intensely personal and most intensely painful topics. It is difficult to have in a one-on-one conversation. It's more difficult to have from here out into a group because I know there have been 63 million abortions in the last 49 years in our country. And what that means is that any room I walk into, there are people for whom this is a desperately painful subject. And the last thing that I would ever want to do is pile on that or communicate in any way, shape, or form condemnation. That is not the message of the gospel. That is not the message of Jesus. That is not the message of this church. That is not my message. The message that I have is of a Savior who delivers, and it's coming out of the mouth of a guy who needs to be delivered and has experienced that. And I recommend everyone experience that deliverance, no matter what the issue may be. But I do kind of want to just pause and go, okay, so I think, at least in my opinion, that that was a victory for life. And I also believe that life is really bottom line what we're talking about. If we can cut through the rhetoric, if we can cut through the passion, if we can cut through the hatred, if we could sit down and reason together in a reasonable way that is respectful to everyone, life, in my opinion, is what the topic is. The Bible comes and it says that preborn children are people. Science, now, I mean, we've advanced so much technologically that geneticists are like, no, yeah, of course, we're, we're talking about people. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, a geneticist, says to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, new human life has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It's, it's, it's settled at this point. Dr. Jaime Gordon of the Mayo Clinic says, by all criteria of modern molecular biology, human life is present from the moment of conception. The American College of Pediatrics declares in its official policy statement on the issue Okay, that that it concurs with the body of scientific evidence that human life begins at conception. John Stott, who's a theologian, not a scientist, but a really brilliant guy, said it this way. said, unborn children are not becoming human, but rather they're growing into the fullness of the humanity that they already possess. And every parent knows that. 
you know, we watch our kids and, you know, you, you have them and then they just keep developing. I mean, I've kind of jokingly, because it's sort of funny to me, talked about the fact that the male brain does not stop developing until you're 25, which is why all of us with young men as children have this phrase, it's keep them alive till they're 25, you know, because at some point they'll look back and go, what was I thinking? And you could go, dude, you were not thinking like that. You were not thinking, you know, and we all have that. I'm like, who was I? You know, like, I don't know. It wasn't He starts developing a conception. He doesn't stop developing physically until he's 25 years old. And the point that I'm trying to make is that his life is no more or less valuable at any point on that spectrum. That's it. And I'm grateful that we'll be able to have that conversation. And I just just hope that we can do it well. So I want to give you three encouragements, and then I'll actually pray and go into the message that we'll talk about. But But the first encouragement is this, and I don't know if you're grateful for this decision or not. I suspect that some of you aren't. And I hope, by the way, that you'll give me a chance to talk to you after the service, if that's the case, not to try to persuade you of anything, just to give you a hug and let you know that I love you, okay? But I think that if you are grateful, don't just be grateful, be gracious. Be gracious, man. If there was ever a time when the fruit of the Holy Spirit has an opportunity to shine, I mean, this has got to be one of the biggest. We are moving into a season in which love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will be at an all-time supreme value. And it will be really unusual in a Jesus-glorifying kind of way. Be gracious. Be gracious. Secondly, do something to help women in unplanned pregnancies. I was talking to a sociologist probably a decade ago, and he said, you know, Tom, he goes, look, 70% of the abortions in America are economically driven. They're usually, they're had by women who didn't want to do it, but they're looking at the kids they already have. And now all of a sudden, now they got another one coming. You got to be kidding me. And then they're going to miss work and they can't, literally, they cannot afford this. And so they hear the Christian church coming and saying, oh, you have a choice. And they're like, do I really? It's a fair point. I think the church has done an average job, to be honest, across the spectrum talking about this topic for the last 49 years and saying that life begins at conception, that it's absolutely precious. Everyone, including those that you might be entering into, I'm going to call it debates with here. It's absolutely precious, these lives. We're all made in the image of God. It makes us intrinsically valuable, everyone. And it needs to be protected. We've done an okay job getting that message out. But now I think it's time for us to step forward and to say, hey, listen, you know, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. I mean, if I can just be plain. We're going to put our time and our energy and our effort and all where our mouth has been. We've been talking about it. 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 And now all of a sudden, we might have some ladies going, hey, do you want to give me a choice? Like, how are you going to help me? What a stellar and fabulously expensive opportunity this is for the church to step in and say, we will help you with housing. We will help you with clothing. We will help you learn how to raise your kids or all of these different things. This is a great opportunity for the church to come around these ladies who are facing unplanned pregnancies and be selfless to them. I'm incredibly grateful for Hope Women's Centers. I'm just going to name some organizations that I hope you give money to. I'm incredibly grateful for Hope Women's Centers. Uh, Their executive director, Joy uh, Wright, and her husband, Jay, worship here. They were sitting in the front row at the first service, and I said that I wasn't going to call them out. And then I used their names, and everybody's like, oh, you called them out. I'm like, no, 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 I'll give you the names. I just wasn't going to tell you they were sitting right here. And uh, 
Wonderful and amazing people. Honestly, it's an honor that, that they worship with us. Tremendous people. What great work Hope Women's Centers does. They have four different centers here in Broward County. They offer free, top-quality medical services to women who find themselves in unplanned pregnancy. They help walk through these seasons of life with them. They help them with information and to make decisions and so forth. Like, they're really good. They resource them by connecting them with other organizations. They are tip of the spear, and I hope that you pray for them. Like they've had, since this opinion was leaked a few weeks ago, the FBI come to visit them. They've upgraded their security system. And frankly, maybe this will make you feel good about donating here. We said to Joy, how much did it cost? She told us. We said, we'll cover that for you. They're heading into a season in which this is really tumultuous. I mean, you know, there are pregnancy centers full of people like this, and we've got several volunteers and board members from this church that that volunteer and work with Hope Women's Centers. They've been firebombed around the country. Not a lot of press on that, but it's happening. There's one down in Hollywood. Somebody wrote on it, if abortion isn't safe, you aren't either. That's a little unnerving, you know, if 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 you work there, if if this is what you're trying to do. If you're looking for organizations to support and get involved in, that's a good one. I'll give you another example, His Caring Place. His Caring Place is a part of Four Kids of South Florida. His Caring Place specifically comes to women who are in unplanned pregnancies, and they take them in, and they provide them with housing and clothing and food and training and all of these different things, exactly what I'm talking about. They're led by one of our elders, Ken Lacey. Wonderful and amazing guy, one of my dear friends. We've been friends for 25 years. He's more famously known around here as the husband of Liz Lacey because she's on our staff, and she's one of the most amazing people to walk the planet. But, but that's another organization. EMA is another one, EMA, Every Mother's Advocate. They're working with these women and with their kids, and, and they're trying to help them and resource them and provide counseling for them, doing phenomenal work. Charlie Chavidjan is, is the leader of that, the founder of that. She is the daughter of Stefan and Lisa Chavidjan, dear friends of ours. And Stefan, in my opinion, is probably the most important Christian leader in South Florida. Uh, They are doing great work, and these are just some of the organizations that are out there. But I do think that this is kind of a a prove-it moment in a lot of ways for the church in general and us too, where, you know, we're kind of going, oh, you've talked about it, and we've done things too. It's not like just talk, but, man, we have the opportunity to step into this and to be helpful to these precious ladies who find themselves in crisis. If we value life the way we say we do, We'll show up now. So there's that. And the last thing is, I, I want you guys to pray, and I'm going to give you some categories, and, and then we're going to pray in a second, and, I, and then we're going to actually do the message. But I want you to pray for the church that we'll step into this moment and step up, that we will be gracious, that we'll debate in a different way and with a different spirit, that we'll enter in and help and be a part of solutions. I want to pray for these pro-life ministries. They need to be protected by God and provided for by God, which is what he does through us. I want to pray for our state lawmakers. How many of y'all want to be one of them right now? That sounds like fun. I want to pray for our country. I don't mean to be like overly dark and despairing, but um, I just went, oh my goodness. And another thing that we get to divide over and argue, that's what we need. 
You know, in our country, what our country needs is revival. I'm just going to be plain. And what's interesting about that is if you look at it historically, that has happened here before, and it's happened in the darkest of moments. The Second Great Awakening came at a time in our country in which Christianity was all but dead. Thomas Paine wrote in that day, Christianity will be completely forgotten within the next 30 years. Like, you'll go, Christianity, what's that? John Marshall, who was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, in that moment, back in that day, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, he said that in his opinion, Christianity is too far gone ever to be redeemed, and then revival came. This is not beyond God. But where does revival start? It doesn't start out there. Revival is not God awakens people out there. It starts here starts here. Revival is God visiting his church and awakening his people. And when an awakened church like mobilizes, okay, well then you see things happen in society and in culture. Lastly, I want to pray for women and unplanned pregnancies. These are the people we're talking about. So how can we come around them? So I'm going to pray and then hopefully we will be able to transition. We'll see. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we lift, um, we lift up your church to you. And God, what we pray for is for you. Lord, we want you to visit us individually. We want you to visit us as, as a church. We want you to visit your church, and we want you to awaken your life in us that we might be a life-giving people in every possible sense of that phrase. Make us gracious, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to everyone around us. Engender within us as only you can do that which violates our nature by making us full of your love and grace and peace and joy and all of the fruit of your Spirit, Lord. Gentleness, self-control, kindness. Do a work in us, Lord that you might do a work through us. God, we lift up these pro-life ministries and all who lead them, the ones I've named and all the multitude of the ones out there that I don't even know about and haven't named, and pray for the, those who are leading them, that you would give them uncommon wisdom, that you would give them uncommon power and favor, that you would make these places, both for everyone who goes there and works there and volunteers there and everyone who comes in as, as clients and as people who are being served faithfully there, a place of peace a place where your presence is felt. Protect them, support them, and let us know how to support them. Lord, we pray for those in our state uh, legislature. We pray for our governor and others who govern over us in this state and for the conversation that is up and running. We pray for decisions that are in accordance with life and with truth and with wisdom and that are sensitive uh, to all the complexities of this issue. It can get complex pretty quick. Lord, we lift up our country and we pray for revival, that you would awaken your church in the midst of this nation and then through your church, that you would awaken and reshape the soul of our country, that you would do what only you can do, and that is to bring us together as opposed to apart. And give us grace to look at the people that we disagree with and, and to love them to seek to understand them, to have compassion toward them, to allow our generosity to flow in that direction also.
And then lastly, we pray for these precious women all over Broward County, all over our country, all over the world who find themselves in, in unplanned pregnancies and wonder, now what? God, I pray that you would meet with them. I pray that you would send your ambassadors to them. I pray that through your church, wherever it's found, you will take them in and love them and care for them. Reveal yourself to them and your deliverance to them. And that physically and spiritually and emotionally and otherwise, you will heal them and provide for them and bring that deliverance to them. So, Lord, we lift all of these things. They are way beyond us to you. And we entrust them to the one who somehow has the capacity uh, to deal with it all. So we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Jesus is a deliverer. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, if you've been with us in the last couple of months, you know that we've been studying Mark's account of the life of Jesus. And you know that a couple of weeks ago, we reached the halfway point, which is awesome. It's an accomplishment. But more than that, it's a change of topics. You know, it's a moment in Mark's gospel in which he goes, okay, so for eight chapters, we've been talking about the identity of Jesus, and now we're going to talk about his mission. So for eight chapters, he said, Jesus is God, he's God, he's God, he's God, he's God, he's God. And then two weeks ago, he's like, okay, so now that I think you got the point, Mark says, let's talk about why he came. What is the mission of Jesus? And, and we're beginning to get a flavor of, a, of the flavor of the character of, of Jesus, of his mission. And his mission is characterized by deliverance. In other words, his mission is a mission of deliverance. Jesus came and he comes to deliver. I mean, you know, you can just start making the list of what? He, he comes to deliver us from sin. That's kind of a significant deal. Like he comes to pay our debt, a different way of saying it, to God that we owe to God. You're like, why in the heck would I owe God a debt? Can we start there? Why would I owe God a debt? Because God made me and God made you and he made everybody else, by the way, and he made us for the greatest purpose ever, to live our lives for the greatest cause ever, for the greatest value ever. It's like he scoured the universe and he's like, these people are precious. I want to make them for the greatest cause, greatest purpose, to live their lives fully for the highest value. What is that? It's me, God. So he made us to live for him. But what happens when you don't give someone something that you owe them? Creates a debt. And the more you withhold, the bigger the debt gets. And if you think about this kind of a debt, it's a debt you can't pay. Why can't you pay it? Because, I mean, no, let's say, for example, yesterday I didn't live for God. I can't go back and relive yesterday, and I can't say, well, it's fine. I'm just going to get it right today. No, no, I already owe him today. So now, one day, I've got an unpayable debt just like that. I mean, I know how many of you all went to college, but that's more than a day, Right? God looks down upon his creatures and he says, I so love you guys that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay your debt. In the person of Jesus Christ, God becomes a man. He enters into the world as one of us and as a man for mankind in the place of all those who will simply claim this payment as the payment for their debt. He offers his infinitely valuable life. And you know that it's accepted as payment because God raises him from the dead. I mean, it's remarkable. So he comes in deliverance and deliverance from sin. He comes in deliverance from death. I mean, spoiler alert, I don't know how if you're aware of this, but like that's how life ends for us in this life. Like it's not a bad thing. Like it gives way to eternal life through faith in Jesus. Like I got it. It's bringing us closer to him. But I mean, it is kind of the way the movie ends. 
every single time and for everyone. Jesus is like, I've come to deliver you from death. You're like, so what does that mean? If I become a Christian, I never die? No. It means that you become a Christian, you die. And there's eternal life on the backside of it. But it means also that there's a new world coming in which you get a new body. And I don't know, the longer I live, the more happy I am about that idea. I'm like, I think I could have a new body and be just fine with that at this point. And it will be an undivided world. No debates, no arguments, no fear, no anger. None of the things that we deal with here. It will be a world where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and we will all be, like, excited about that. We'll enter into the joy of that. He comes to deliver us from futility. I would ask you a question. Like, if there is no God, what is the purpose of your life? How would you answer that? I mean, because if you just think it through reasonably, if there is no God, there's no basis for morality. There's there's no basis for ethics. There's no possible meaning or purpose or anything to anyone's life. It's just kind of whatever you assign to it. You know, you sort of get to the end and you go, I don't know, did it matter? But if there is a God and, and through Christ, he makes peace with his people. He gives us a mission. He fills us with his spirit. He's like, use your life in ways that matter for all of eternity. I'm going to deliver you from futility. So when you get to the end of your life, you don't go, why was I here? I give that to you on the front end. What about loneliness? He comes to deliver from that. Jesus is described to us as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one who walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. Again, a little morbid, just hang with me. Like at the end of this life, what are you hanging on to with with your hand, if you will, that death will not take from you? Can you name anything or anyone? No. But what about Christ? It's like he fills us with his spirit. He walks with us through this life. And he meets us there in the valley of the shadow of death. Come on, this is a hand you know. I I know the valley. I've traversed the valley. I'm in this with you. There is no reason to fear. It's remarkable. He delivers us from worthlessness, from this this inner aching that all of us have where we just kind of wonder and maybe in our more honest moments admit, you know, it's like, do I matter? Like, am I valuable? Like, no matter how much I amass, no matter how much I get, no matter how much I pile up, no matter how much I impress, no matter how many awards, how many plaques on the wall, we're all just like, have I done enough to matter? And Jesus is like, have I done enough to matter? Because I've given my life for you my value to you, and I'm of infinite value. He cures our worthlessness, our wounds, our hurts, our pains. He delivers them from, or he delivers us from all of these things by healing us, first of all, and then using them and turning them to positive good by using us to help other people walk through similar things. So the point is that Jesus' mission is a mission of deliverance. And as we come to the central story of Mark chapter 10 today, I want you to see that Jesus has also come to deliver you from the gods of this world. And here's how he does it. It's awesome. He does it by offering you himself in their place. In other words, he doesn't come to you and say, hey, you know that little God on the throne of your heart? It's not working, right? I mean, you're aware of that. Okay, so let's do this. Let's get rid of it, and then you just be empty. He comes to us and says, look, no, no, little God, not working. Let's move it over here. Let's get it out of there. You get me. I'm giving you me. So if, for example, you're, you're trying to, to cure or to fix your inner poverty with external wealth, yeah, it doesn't work. You know, Jesus is like, eh, it doesn't matter. You're always looking up, you know. Somebody else always has more and you're going, eh, I don't matter as much as that person. You know, like, and it, 
He's like, replace that with me. If you're trying to fix your inner deformities with external beauty, and look, we all are kind of trying to do that at some point. Like at some point, all of a sudden, this stuff matters, and you start working out, and you start dieting, you know, you start using sunscreen. I highly recommend that now that I've had skin cancer removed three times. So please do use sunscreen. You know, there's all these skincare products and all of that stuff, but it only holds it off for so long. I was getting my hair cut a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, so I'm, this lady has kept my hair for like 12 years. She's awesome. She is the only person, my son, and if you've ever seen him, he has hair, okay? And he loves his hair. She's the only person on the planet who can cut his hair. That's it. And he only does it like once a year, but she's the only one allowed to do it. So she's cutting my hair. I got this black plastic robe-like thing on, and like so clumps of my hair are falling on this thing. And when it's black, you know, and then you can see like the white hair against it, and she like... Out loud, she said, wow, look at all your gray hair, you know? And then I think she thought maybe that was an inside thought. So, like, she tried to back it up, and she said, oh, she said, it's okay, you know? I'm like, it's too late, right? She's like, it's okay. You look distinguished. And I thought, you're not making this better. You know, this is not, this is not trending in a good direction, distinguished. Like, if I come to you and I go, oh, no, yeah, well, describe him to me. He's a very distinguished gentleman. He's 75, right? Like, I mean... Can we agree? Distinguished. So I guess that's, I'm, I'm distinguished now, which is great, I guess. I mean, it's better than not distinguished. But if you're trying to cure your inner deformities with external beauty, it's a failing enterprise. Jesus is like, can we just agree that's not going to work long term? Like, let's just, let's just move that out. Let's, let's move me in if you're trying to fix your inner emptiness with sex and romance and this boyfriend and that boyfriend and I'm married and I'm unmarried and I'm married again and I'm not married. And I, you know, it's all, it's, I'm trying to find this in a person. It's not even fair to that person. You've got a hole inside of you that no finite person can fill. Jesus is like, I'm infinite. So let's stop asking these people to do things that they can't do. And let me work in your heart and life. Jesus has come to deliver you from the gods of this world. And here's how, by offering himself in your place. And the story that we're going to look at today is found not only in the Gospel of Mark, but we find it in Matthew, we find it in Luke, and each one brings some details that really help us build out the character of the person that we're going to look at today. And we know that, for example, he is a young man. So Matthew tells us that he's young. He's fabulously wealthy. They all agree on that. Luke comes along and says, ah, but that's not enough. This guy is also a ruler. So he is a guy who is part of the religious establishment of the Jews that in this moment in history stands absolutely opposed to Jesus, okay? But what all of that means, that little description, is that this one guy has collected up a whole bunch of the little G-O-D-S gods of this world. I mean, again, he's young, you know? You know, maybe you're thinking, man, I've been thinking about your gray hair, Tom. And so here's the deal. Like you're, maybe you're 35. You're like, when my hair starts to go gray, I'm just going to dye it. And that's fine. But listen, it's not just the hair. There were other things falling apart. I went to the ophthalmologist. I don't know if I told you this like six months ago. So she comes in, she dilates my eyes. She leaves for 10 minutes. She comes back. And then she takes that space module-like thing that shines a light into your freshly dilated eyes that is honestly the brightest thing in the universe, and as far as I can tell, shoots laser beams out of your ears, and she tries to dial in on my left eye, and then she kind of like 
pulls the thing back, you know, like it's on a mechanical arm, and she's like looking for an instrument, and there's nothing. And so she just grabs a pen, and then she reaches over the machine and lifts my eyelid out of the way. Because it sags so low, apparently, (laughs) that my fully dilated pupil is obscured from her laser beam machine. And so, like, she's lifting my eyelid with a pen while penetrating my soul with this light. And I'm having this crisis, like, what the heck is going on right now? You know, and then she did it again on the other eye. I left. I can't see anything. I'm, like, looking in my mirror. I'm, like, what's wrong with my eyelids? And anyway, so it's not just that. This guy's young. It's a God, youth. He's wealthy. That's a God. He's powerful, that's a God. He's well-educated, that's a God. I'm sure he's articulate and intelligent, that's a God. He's scrupulous in his obedience to the law of God. What kind of a life does that produce? It typically produces the kind of life that people respect. It typically produces the kind of person that people like because they go, you know, this guy's honest. This guy's fair. This guy's kind. He's gracious. He's humble. It's a lot of things. So you can add great reputation to the list. I mean, you know, good grief. The guy's probably even good looking, right? And you're thinking, now I just want to punch this guy. All of these advantages that he has, and he has all kinds of advantages. And you have all kinds of advantages. You know what? Enjoy the advantages. They're the gift of the Lord to you. How wonderful. I think it's fantastic. But don't worship them. They make terrible gods from which you then need to be delivered. So this guy has it all. And he's, in addition to that, self-aware enough to know that it isn't working. And humble enough to admit it publicly. It's amazing. And we know that because Jesus comes to his town. Jesus teaches. He's out in the crowd. Jesus finishes. He gets up. He's going to leave. He's going to go to another town. And this guy bursts forth from the crowd publicly, races in front of Jesus, and in a sign of abject humility, right, subservience to, to the one before whom you bow in that culture, he bows down at the feet of Jesus. And then he asks him a religious question that's very basic. Just think about what just happened there. You have a wealthy man bowing to a man with no wealth. You have a man with great status bowing to a man with no at least earthly status, right? You have one of the religious elite, of the, of the religious establishments of the Jews that stood opposed to Jesus in this day, bowing to the one that they all oppose. It's not going to go well for him at the office. And then he comes along and he asks him a religious question, a basic religious question, betraying the reality that this man doesn't think that he or the rest of the religious establishment has a satisfying answer. Wow. He bows before Jesus and he says, good teacher. This is Mark 10, verse 17. And that's revealing because it tells you who he thinks that Jesus is. Mark's like, I, you didn't read my book. What, what the heck? You got to start with chapter one. You know, like he's God. He's, he's not just a good teacher. He's God. But this guy thinks, eh, good teacher. You know, as teachers go, you're pretty good. So he doesn't see Jesus clearly or himself because he then says, what must I do, which is the key word, to inherit eternal life? And here's why that's revealing. It's revealing, first of all, because the whole Bible in concert says Jesus is God. And because when you come to these places in the Bible where people consciously enter into the presence of God, oh man, 
When they gaze even for a second upon his holiness, upon his beauty, upon his righteousness, upon his perfections, they're completely undone. And they realize immediately there is absolutely nothing I can do to gain eternal life. Because all of a sudden what I realize in that moment instinctively is that the standard by which I'm going to be judged is not going to be the standard of our culture. It's not going to be the standard of society. It's not going to be the the standard, you know, maybe of your mother, you know, little Johnny. I know he murdered all those puppies, you know, when he was 36. But he's just misunderstood. You know, no, Johnny's sick. You know, like, let's just deal with it. Like, that's not the standard. My mom thinks I'm great. Well, that's it then. You're in. You know, like, you enter into the presence of God, the chamber of God, and you see the holiness of God and you go, oh my goodness. The standard is God. He's the standard. His holiness, his perfections, his righteousness, his his beauty. I have an unpayable debt, and the only thing I can do to inherit eternal life is to trust in what Jesus has done already for me in his life and suffering, in his death and burial and love for me to pay my debt and his resurrection that tells me that the debt, the payment, has been accepted. The check is cleared. All I need to do is to bring my mess to him and say, Lord, forgive me, heal me, fill me, redeem me, repurpose me. Take me, I'm yours. That's the idea. But he doesn't get that yet. And so he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then challenges him on his use of the word good. He's like, all right, let's talk about good. You just use that word. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? And then he gives us and him the definition of good. He says, no one is good except God alone. And you didn't call me good God. You call me good teacher. So I'm guessing you haven't figured out that that's who I am yet and you don't know what the definition of good is, that's it right there. And just to show him then that he's not as good as God, Jesus takes him to the law of God, which is an expression of the character of God. And he says, well, let's line you up next to this, because maybe this will humble you a little bit. You'll go, my goodness, I've got a debt that needs to be paid. I can't pay it. Will you do this for me? And so he starts running through the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother, at which, this time, at which point this guy calls a timeout. He's like, hey, I'm good on all of that. He says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And then here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't take him back and go, you missed the Sermon on the Mount. Like, because if you heard it, you'd realize, oh, no, no, no. You're not free and clear on these. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Mr. Ruler Guy, I explain that murder isn't just something you do out here. It's something you do in here. Like when you get angry in here, You're murdering your brother in here. Adultery isn't just something you do out here. It's something you do in here. You know, theft isn't just something you do in here. Dishonesty, like it's something you do in here. And by that standard, none of us can go and beyond that even. I mean, if you look at the necessary implication of each one of these laws that he cites here, there's not just a negative aspect as in a thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not murder, for example. There is a positive aspect. It's calling us to value life. Thou shalt not take it. Thou shalt promote it. The same with marriage. Thou shalt not, you know, bring ruinous things into it. Thou shalt instead cultivate it and protect it. Thou shalt not be dishonest, but thou shalt promote honesty. Like Jesus could have walked him through all that stuff and just, you know, undressed him, but he doesn't do that at all. He's amazing. Mark alone gives us this next statement. It says, and Jesus, looking at this man and all of his lostness and ignorance and idolatry, but he is sincere. 
He sincerely, you know, like wants to know the answer. It says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You know, when you read through the Bible, please stop at moments like that. You know, when you go to the Bible and you do your personal worship or you're reading through it or whatever, like be interrupted. It's okay. Like you, you might, oh no, I got three chapters to do today. The heck with that. Let God interrupt you wherever it is you're at. Like when he steps in and goes, did you see that? Stop. You might be done for the day. Just meditate on that. He loved this man. So what about you? Like when you think about the Lord looking at you, Jesus looked at him. Okay, Jesus looks at you. How do you imagine him to look at you? You know, is he stern? Is he angry? Is he disapproving? I think what we tend to do is we tend to project ourselves upon Jesus and we go, okay, so here's the deal. If I was Jesus, I would look at me this way. Yeah, but you're not. Isn't that good news? Me neither. That's really good news. Jesus is appreciably different. He is infinitely greater. If you're looking for his heart, it's right here. It says in Jesus, looking at him, loved him and and looking into his heart. Jesus knows what his problem is. In this man's case, his little G-O-D God is money. It's what he's trying to cure his inner poverty with. And so when that's the case, as I've already said, you can't get enough, which makes you covetous. You look at people who have more, you're like, I want what they have. And then you get that and you're like, I want what the next guy has, you see? So he just cuts right to the chase. He says to him, look, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. So he's not saying empty it out. You get nothing in response. He's like, no, no, no. empty it out. Get that God off the throne. You get treasure in heaven, which you don't let go of at the end of this life. That's your treasure on earth. But instead you lay hold of and it's not subject to inflation or thievery or, you know, any of this other stuff. But way beyond that, he then says, and come and follow me. So he's going, let's take this God off the throne of your life. I'm giving you me. I'm giving you me. Come and follow me as my 13th disciple, if you will, because, you know, as it turns out, Judas has the same problem. And he's going to drop out of the clan here pretty soon. And 12's the magic number. You can just step right in. What an honor this guy is given. But he doesn't see it. And so we read that disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. And here's why, because he had great possessions. And they were what he was looking to, to cure his inner poverty and deformities and loneliness and emptiness and worthlessness. and Couldn't give it up. We think about what we're going to have to give up. What are we getting? That's the ad, you see. And Jesus then looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel, this great big animal, to go through the eye of a needle, this tiny little hole made for nothing larger than a thread, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' disciples were exceedingly astonished. They're like, we like this guy. Really? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. But that's not where we're left with the gospel. 
The next four words are the game changer for everyone. Wealthy, not wealthy, whatever. But not with God. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God. You get the idea? For all things, he says, are possible with God. God can even remove the little G-O-D, God of wealth, and replace it with himself. And he does that with all the other gods too. So Jesus has come to deliver you from the gods of this world. Here's how, by offering himself in their place. He's not saying be empty. He's going, no, for the first time ever, be authentically full. Be full with me. So I close with this. What dead little inept gods. Do you love that? I thought, man, this is so insulting to these gods. What dead little inept god do you need to be delivered from today? What's the one? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it relationships? Is it beauty? Is it, what is it? Is it reputation? Is it the the dead little God of comparative obedience where you look around and you go, well, you know, I'm surely we're going to get to the end and God's going to go, oh, you're in the top 49%. Like you're in like, no, that's not the standard. He's the standard. What dead little inept God do you need to be delivered from today? And secondly, will you surrender your God and yourself to Jesus who came to deliver you in every possible way. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you are a God who delivers. Lord, we love that for we need deliverance. I pray that by your spirit and through your word, you would grant to us a faith that brings to you the debt that we owe you and just lays it at your feet in joy and says, my goodness, pay this for me. And that sees in you a God who doesn't look with disapproval. Who doesn't look stern. Whose arms are not crossed but open. A God of love who loves and receives those who come to him in faith. And lay their lives before him. Lord, let us lay down our little inept gods. They're, they're, not, they're not doing anything for us, at least as gods. They may be great blessings that we can then probably now be free to actually enjoy for the first time. Because we don't have to look to them to give us something they can't and feel the weight of that constant failure. But instead, we can just enjoy them as blessings from you. Lord, fill us with a faith that surrenders to you, is then filled by your spirit and repurposed in accordance with your purposes, life, matters. So let us live in a way that matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.